Had this uh, we had this event where um, Jesus was at a Pharisee's house, and during this dinner, a woman who was known to be a sinner came and washed his feet with her tears and then dried it with her hair. Just this beautiful picture here, and so I want to keep that in our minds as we continue uh, this next this next part here. I, don't, I want to make sure that we haven't forgotten that and that it's still fresh there. Is it? It's part of it's just this is the next step in the narrative that, that Luke presents for us. So Luke chapter eight, starting in verse one. I'll read a few verses and then we'll we'll talk about them. So Luke chapter eight, verse one. Soon afterwards he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So we have this event just before this where, we, where Jesus tells this parable about those who are forgiven much love much, and those who are forgiven little love little. Um, and so we go into this and we see that uh, Luke highlights these three women who are among other women who were there who were included in this. And we can see many of the same characteristics in them. And Mary Magdalene is really an important figure in early Christianity. She's been featured in uh, a lot of artwork and things like that. There's been much kind of conjecture about who she is. And um, the na- last name Magdalene uh, what we might consider a last name was really probably a reference to where she was from. There was a city called Magdala, which is uh, uh, on the southwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Mary Magdalene was one of the earliest disciples. She witnesses most of the events of the crucifixion, as we see later in Scripture. She was the earliest witness of the resurrection, um, and she and Jesus sent her to tell the other disciples when when she saw him uh, risen from the grave. Like go tell uh, go tell the other disciples um, what to do or that I'm alive and what to do. Um, she's named more often in the Gospels than most of the other apostles, um, or most of the apostles. She's listed first among uh, the list of women all but once. So whenever they'd give a list of several different women, she's usually the first one. And remember, we had the same thing with Peter. Whenever the apostles were listed, Peter was always uh, almost always the first one listed. So it was really uh, an indication of her prominence among the women that were serving uh, alongside to Jesus. Um, one thing we, we want to be careful of is over the years, there's been this idea, and, and Derek spoke to this a little bit last week, there's been this idea that the woman in Luke chapter 7 is Mary Magdalene. And, and I agree with Derek that there's really not any scriptural support for that, that they, these are two different women. Uh, Mary Magdalene, yes, she had seven demons, but she was not known to be a notorious sinner in the same way that the woman in chapter 7 was. And we also want to be careful that, that there are some who would say that in John, the woman that we see in John chapter 8 who's called in adultery and is about to be stoned, um, and Jesus intervenes there. Some people say, well, that was Mary Magdalene as well, which continues this whole narrative 
uh, about her, but we don't have any scriptural uh, support for that either. So we want to go by what scripture says here. The idea is that they're really different women. Mary was a very common name, as Derek talked about last week. So there's been scholarly debate about it. It's been portrayed in art because it's really, it would be a really cool story to have this woman who all these different things had happened to, and then she reaches this position among the disciples, um, but is really not supported by what the Bible says. So we want to be careful with that. If you read or saw the movie The Da Vinci Code, you saw that there's an entirely additional narrative that they have about Mary um, that, that we see in the Da Vinci Code, but it was also pulling from the Gnostic Gospels, which were Gospels, Gospels in quotation marks, that were written sometime after the time of Jesus that told stories about them, but the early church fathers rejected them because they knew that they were not uh, sound. There was, they, were, uh, they were fiction, basically. And in these, they even suggest that Mary was married to Jesus. And uh, so you can see how that could kind of snowball into some very bad doctrine there. So we want to make sure that we're, we're basing our, what we know about Mary and what we know about Jesus on uh, the Word of God. And so you have also another woman here mentioned, Joanna. We don't know as much about her, but we have to see the contrast between her. Yeah, we have the kids upstairs singing. If this is your first time here and you're not used to that, we, we've kind of grown used to it here. So. Um, so you have this other woman, Joanna, and we have to contrast her with her husband and with the person that her husband served, who was Herod, who was not a very good man. Uh, he was a, an evil man. And so we see that maybe her husband had also accepted Jesus and was supporting her in this, but he was at least allowing her to, uh, to follow Jesus and to support him out of her means, the, what money that she had. But what we see with all of these women, which ties back to the parable that I mentioned earlier, was all of them had a great cause for gratitude. Jesus had done something in their life. They had been healed they had had demons uh, taken away that had been tormenting them. Uh, so we see all these things that they have a great cause for gratitude, a great reason to be thankful to Jesus. And they supported and participated in the missionary efforts uh, that Jesus and his uh, other disciples were participating in. Another thing that it highlights that, that may not be completely obvious is that Jesus was dependent on other people for his material support. So the king of the universe, uh, God himself has come down and put himself in dependence of the very people that he's created um, for his food, for his shelter, for the means that he has. This is a voluntary poverty that Jesus has allowed himself to come into um, for his physical needs. And that's not something that we should overlook um, it's just another part of the incarnation that we're, as we go into this Christmas season, as we celebrate Jesus coming to earth, he did not come to a palace. He did not come to, uh, to be the child of a king or anything like that. We saw that with Moses, that, that God used, put him in a very high position to accomplish his purpose. But with Jesus, he came to a very low position. And that's not something that, that we should overlook. Let's continue on, uh, starting at verse 4. So verse 4, chapter 8, when a large crowd was coming together and those from various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, 
and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, let he, let, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, to, and he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. The key with this parable is that there are different responses to the gospel, which I think we're all aware of, that people respond differently. But only one of these responses results in salvation. And the great thing here is that Jesus interprets his own parable, so there's not really a whole lot we need to add to it. Um, but let's look at it as we go through. Well, first in verse 10, we have this question uh, about why he speaks to them in parables. And he says, to, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And he's quoting here from Isaiah 6-9, which is where God is commissioning Isaiah to go out and to speak his word. And so what he's saying is that through these parables, he's speaking truth, but not all of them will understand. Um, What others may see as a simple story may actually hold really profound truth. And we see this in Christmas, that for us, for believers... Christmas holds a really profound truth in that Jesus came to earth. Now, we we know the history of Christmas, that there was all different types of things. But for us, it holds a a profound truth. But to the culture at large, it's a time for giving gifts. It's time for being with family. And there is this little story of a baby who came and the wise man, and we have our little nativity scene set up. And there is (laughs) truth in that. But there's a much bigger profound truth in that story. And we see that the same with parables, that Jesus speaks in parables often, and they have really profound truth, even if they're a very simple story. But also we see that truth is available to all, but only some will understand. And and he even says, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries. So we should, you know... For those of us who read these stories and we see this truth and God has turned that light on in our head to go, oh, wow, I see this, that's something that's been granted to us by God. And we we should be thankful for that. It's the work of the Spirit in our lives, often leading up to the time that we become believers, but then certainly well after that. 
So let's look at the four seeds that are here. Anytime, before I even get there, verse 8 at the end, it says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When we were in college, the, the BCM group um, that Courtney was a part of at Troy, they had this skit that they would also do where they had like ears of corn. He who has ears to hear. And it was just funny. It's like, I, I don't think that's what he meant by that, but it was a good way to tell the story without it uh, and be funny at the same time. So, and then my dad, you know, my dad and I are really corny when we, eh, corny, look at there, uh, when we talk to each other and we would see, uh, we drove, one day we drove by a field and we're like, wow, I wonder what that is in the field. He said, it might be corn. I said, I don't know, but it amazes me. And uh, that's, those are the hits you get to hear when you're around me and my dad. So, all right, so let's look at these four, these four seeds here. The first one falls beside the road. And Jesus tells us in verse 12, it's for those who have heard, but then the devil comes and takes, takes it away. And what we have to see here is that the devil is actively working against the spreading of the gospel. The devil is not neutral in this. Um, so as believers, when we're sharing the gospel, we have to work wisely knowing that we have an adversary. Um, it, it's, it's like football. You know, we've had lots of lots of football, and I watched a couple of games yesterday. If you were to give me a football and put me out on a football field and tell me to run to the other end, I could do it, you know, without too much problem. You put 11 300-pound guys out there and tell me to run through them to the, then I'm probably not going to make it out alive. Um, we have to realize that we have an opponent. Because if we're playing a game and thinking there's nobody opposing us, well, oh, this is pretty easy, but we have an opponent, and the opponent is the devil who's working against us as we share the gospel. The second soil is the rocky soil. And this, this is one that I think hold, has, over the past year or so, has really kind of shed some light on some things for me. But we have this rocky soil for people who start sincerely, who hear the gospel and they, they start sincerely. They, it's, there's a, a response there. But they lose their motivation. They lose their interest. Um, maybe their initial response was primarily an emotional response. And, you know, emotions don't last. Emotions wear out. Because at the, at the beginning there, there was no real commitment. It was a response to something that sounded great, but there was no real commitment there. Um, it, those of you who are married have been in long-term relationships you know, there's a difference from the, the exciting emotions at the beginning of a relationship and the long-term commitment over the years because those emotions are not always going to be there. Um, so we see that with, uh, with the gospel, that there are some who have some type of response at the beginning, but then they don't, it's not real. There's no real commitment. And what this should tell us is that it is possible and should be expected that some will respond positively and then fall away. And it may be short term. It may be like a few weeks. It could be sometime later um, that they, they then fall away. And we can't ignore them. We can't go, oh, well, I guess they just didn't have any commitment. You know, we'll find somebody else. We can't do that. We must, as, as believers, as a church, we must work to keep them connected. And this comes in the form of pastoral care of you know, working with folks, getting to know them, understanding their questions, 
You know, Jesus tells the story. It says, how many of you, if you have a hundred sheep and one of them goes away, you're not, all of you are going to leave that 99 to go find that one, which may seem reckless, but that's what God did for us. And so we have to be actively watching for those and caring for those who seem to be possibly in this category. We must do all that we can to help them uh, stay with the flock, for lack of a, a better illustration there. And it's all, this, this section here, is, for me, has really been helpful when we, a while back when we looked at Galatians and then also recently when we looked at uh, Thessalonians, um, is that in, you know, in Galatians chapter 5, it gives this idea of falling from grace. And some people use that as support for losing your salvation, that a person can be a genuine believer and then lose their salvation. I don't hold to that at all. Um, I, I believe that once a person is a real believer, they will not fall away. There certainly may be times that they are farther away from God, but they will not fall away. Their salvation is secure. And then you also, but there could be those who, and if, especially if you look at the Galatians passage, who are like, yeah, this sounds great. This idea of grace is awesome. But, and they try to, but what if I, don't I have to do some works? Don't I have to, what if I mess up? Does that mean that I'm not a believer anymore? And the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2 where it talks about the apostasy, those who were professing believers but then speak against God. There's several different ways that we can explain that, but I think this rocky soil illustration is one to where people who profess to be believers but really aren't. Not all professing believers are genuine. Some may be trusting in works, thinking that their good works are what's going to please God for them. Others may hold really false beliefs about who God is, who Jesus is, uh, how a person is saved. All of these things can be to the point to where their faith is not founded on the right things. It's not founded on Jesus and His work on the cross. But the other thing we have to be careful of is uh, the social connection to Christianity. That it's more than being a believer is more than just checking a box on the census form. You know, when they ask, what's your religious affiliation? In our culture, a lot of people over the years have checked Christian because they're like, well, I'm not Muslim, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not an atheist, so I must be a Christian. You know, that's the default answer. Well, as our, over the past several years, people are more than likely to say, actually, I don't really believe any of that. And so they're more likely to say that they believe in nothing. Their beliefs really haven't changed. It's just they're being more honest about it. As a church researcher I know says, facts are our friends, and we have to look at the real numbers because we'll see all types of bad statistics. There was a big news article over the past few weeks about how Christianity in America is dying. Well, what's happened is if you, if you dive into those numbers, people who are actually believers and in the sense that they actually participate in regular church meetings, they're active in their church, that number has stayed pretty much the same, but what's happened is the people who aren't really active in any church, but have said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, they're now being a little more honest to saying, well, actually I'm not. They're, they're the nuns, as we say, that hold no religious belief, um, which is really a religious belief in itself, but that's, that's a separate thing. Um, and, and even the statistics have, have crept into when we talk about marriage outcomes. It used to be that the, the statement would be that Christians get divorced at the same rate as uh, non-Christians uh, or maybe even a higher rate. But if you really dive into those numbers, that's really 
carried by the bulk of people who say they're a Christian but have no active participation in church or anything like that. If you dive into the numbers and see couples that are active in their, in their church, who their faith is a key part of their life, those marriages do much better than the average. Um, not to say that being a believer doesn't mean you get a divorce. It happens. But the statistics show that you have a much better chance of having a good marriage and having a long marriage uh, if both of you are believers and are active in your church. Also, people who are atheists can have great marriages too. It's not what I'm saying here. So uh, just want to be honest with our statistics as we look at them. So the third soul that we see here in verse 14 is the seed that fell among thorns. It says, have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. See those three words, worries, riches, and pleasures. Both good and bad things can keep us from God. Both good and bad things can keep us from God. Let's, let's look at these three worries. Um, if you've ever studied psychology or social work or anything like that, you may have come across uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can picture it as a pyramid that shows what are the things that we as humans try to address in our life in an order of priority. And across the bottom of that pyramid are our physio- uh, physiological needs, food, water, shelter, Um, sex is even thrown in there, because we have a a biological need for these things. We have a drive for them. So that's the base of that. Then up above that is our safety. You know, we want to have shelter. We want to be protected from things that can happen to us. Above that, and this is in progression of how we address them, above that is our love and belonging, being a part of a community, having relationships. And then above that is our, our esteem, what we think of ourselves, At the top of this pyramid is the broad category of self-actualization, which is where things like spirituality, philosophy fall. So according to this psychological theory, you have to at least have addressed all those other things before your mind can really think about spiritual things. Even though our greatest need is for God, our, our greatest felt needs, the thing that we feel we need, are all these other things leading up to that. Those are the things that we worry about. I've worked with some people who have been worried about where their next meal is coming from, where they're going to sleep that night. Once you get those things taken care of, then you start thinking about, all right, more long-term things. You think, start thinking about relationships. You know, start thinking about your community. Who are the people that you want to be around? And all of these things can generate a lot of worry in our life. Um, But it takes a long time before somebody gets to the point where I'm really worried if there's a God or not. A lot of these other things have to be met before you can seriously consider those things. But all of those things can worry us to the point that we don't consider God, that we don't give uh, enough emphasis to that. The other thing that he mentions is riches. Um, And this could be wealth. It could be the stability that we draw from wealth. We feel that if we have money that we're stable, that we're okay. Um, It could be, uh, it can affect our character. What it can do is create the sense that we don't need God. We're not dependent on Him for anything because if I need something, I can just go pay for it. You know, I have a roof over my head. So these riches can choke us away. You you know, you'll find that very wealthy people often are pretty horrible people. 
are pretty miserable people because they think that this wealth is going to give them security, but it really doesn't because they find that they have all of this and they're still empty. Jesus says that it's difficult for a rich man to enter heaven. It doesn't say it's impossible because with God all things are possible. But being wealthy, and in America, the vast majority of us compared to the rest of the world are very wealthy. Um, it can be very difficult for, for people to accept God for who He is when we're surrounded by so much wealth. And then we come to pleasures. Um, he says, worries, riches, and pleasures. Pleasures are those distractions that we have that just uh, take us, uh, keep us from considering the real things that are in our life. Uh, it could be, and the thing with pleasures that we're always seeking more. What we think will satisfy us satisfies us for about 30 seconds, and then we have to find the next thing, which leads to an addiction. And it can be drugs, food, alcohol, sex, pornography, any of those things mess with our brain to the point that we become addicted to them. And when you're, when you're so addicted to pleasure that that's the main thing or that's what drives you, that when your mind is at rest, that's what it goes to. It numbs us to the calling of God. And we're in a society that seeks pleasure all the time. You know, I, I usually don't go bored more than 30 seconds before I grab my phone and start looking at Facebook or a game or something like that because we're always seeking that pleasure, just those things that make our brains fire those positive feelings. Um, you know, I've been trying to be a bit of a runner the past year or two. I hate running, but I love having run. Because you know that feeling after you run, you're like, man, I feel awesome. It was miserable for the last 30 minutes, but I feel awesome now. There, there, there are some people that even with working out can become an addiction because they are addicted to that feeling. So you have to be careful with all of those things. Um, addiction is powerful. But then the last soil that he mentions here, the good soil, and he describes it in verse 15 as an honest and good heart. Now, you remember uh, if you were in our house fellowships and we were going through 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago, it says that the love of the truth leads to salvation. The truth is, is that many prefer to be deceived. Many people prefer to live and believe a lie because it's easier. Um, I read an article about sermon illustrations and said that references to the matrix have been way overused, but I'm going to use it anyway just because we don't do too many of those around here. If you saw the movie The Matrix, it came out like forever ago for most of y'all. The lead character comes to this scene where he's offered a choice. So he can take the blue pill and go back to his normal life, which was a complete fabrication. Nothing that he thought was true was true. He says, you can just go back and forget this ever happened. It says, or you can take the red pill and see what reality is. And many people take that blue pill, proverbially, to where I, I don't want to know the truth. I just want to live this lie because it's happy and I'm okay with that. But when you love the truth, when you seek the truth, you're not satisfied with deception. You can't, you can't live with it. You have to seek the truth. We can't be willfully ignorant. Asking questions is a good thing. Seeking the truth is a good thing. But we actually have to be seeking the truth. We, 
many, many people may ask questions just to provide some ambiguity to where they don't really have to commit to anything. We have to ask questions and then seek the truth or we're being intellectually dishonest. The best fruits require time, cultivation, and patience. And the fruit that we're talking about here is the evidence of salvation. It's not proof of salvation, but it's evidence that points to it. And we can be referring to the fruit of the Spirit, which is listed in Galatians chapter 5, love, patience, kindness, self-control, those things that should be characteristics of all of our lives as we grow to be believers. Fruit, uh, good fruit could be good works, both inward and outward. But we can't confuse that with a works-based salvation to where we have to do good works in order to be saved, to please God. We're saved through grace, through the work of Christ. Good works are the product of that, or the benefit of that, the outcome of it. Because if you take good soil, and you have good seed, and you cultivate it, you're going to get fruit. It's a natural consequence. Um, It's obvious. And that's the great thing with parables, is that Jesus uses these very obvious things to teach these big truths, just as he does in this next section where we talk about uh, a lamp. So let's keep reading in Luke chapter 8, verse 16. Now, no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen. Whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. So he comes to this picture of a lamp. And we all know whether it's you know, uh, an oil lamp like would have been uh, used at Jesus' time or a lamp like we have around here, you don't take a lamp and then go put it in a closet somewhere and close the door. It defeats the purpose of the lamp. And it's the same way with the gospel. If we receive the gospel and then just hide it up and say, well, that's a part of me that's private that I don't share with anybody that's just me and God, that's contrary to its purpose. It's completely opposite of what it, God has intended it for, and it makes no sense. The purpose of the light is to let one see something else, not the light itself. So the reason we have lights in here is so we can see what we're doing, so that we don't trip over chairs. We can read the books that are in front of us. It's not so we can stare at the light because that'll mess with your eyes after a while. Um, you don't, we don't stare at the sun because it will ruin our eyesight. But the sun is what allows us to see everything else. The light of God reveals our true condition. It reveals us for who we are, that we are opposed to God, that we're sinful people. But it also teaches us the truth about Jesus. It turns on that light to go, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, He loves us. He, he died on the cross for us so that we can have a right relationship with Him. That's what the light reveals. Jesus had kindled a light within them, and He's making sure that they don't hide it. But they have to see that it spreads to others. And then in verse 18, he gives, a, um, he gives a, another kind of reference here, this principle. It says, Take care how you listen, for whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. And this is a principle that can really be widely applied. Um, the 
we have this idea that we're an empty vessel and we have we can only hold so much and that once we're full if you keep pouring stuff it's just going to run over that we can only hold so much but that's not the way that we are as people when it comes to God we have an unlimited capacity for what God can pour into us and if we're receptive we'll receive it because what happens if we're not receptive, we're empty, and we can't get any more. But a person who is receptive, who's already been poured into, can continue to be poured into. It's similar to the, the parable of the talents that we see in Matthew 25, where a master gives three of his servants three different amounts of money. And if we understand talents correctly, these were all very large amounts of money. And then he left and asked them to invest or to take care of it. Well, the first servant did some business with it, and basically doubled his master's money. Pretty good business, you know, for any time. Uh, the second one did the same thing. Even though he had a lesser amount, he invested it, he did some business with it, he came back and had some money left over. But the third one was scared. And he said, you know, my master is an exacting guy. I need to make sure I give him back his money. So he took that money, went and hid it away, and when his master came back, he gave back his master the money. The same exact amount that he had given him to begin with. The master was furious because he was like, I gave you this to do something with it, and now you've just given back what I gave you. You could have just put it in the bank and at least learned, earned a little bit of interest on it. And he didn't even do that. And then he says that he took away from that one uh, servant and gave to the others, gave them more, because they had shown to be responsible for it. And it's the same way with the gospel. We have to be good stewards of what we're given and what God has entrusted to us. And it's not just the gospel. It's everything that we're made stewards of. Um, in our personal lives, in our world, we have to be good stewards of all that. And when it comes to these things, we will be held accountable. Um, we've been talking a little bit about the day of the Lord and stuff like that in our house fellowships. Um, but there will be a time where believers will be held accountable for what they've done, the works of their life if they've been faithful with the things that God has given them or not. So we have to make sure that we're acting in such a way that we can hold up to that accounting well. Let's look at a few more verses, starting in verse 19. And his mothers and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is pretty harsh. Um, when talking about, you know, it's like, this is Jesus, and he doesn't want him to see his family. Uh, it can seem a bit harsh. So we, we comes a couple a couple of questions come up. What? Why did they want to see him? And why did he refuse? And what what was the nature of their relationship? Um, you would think that that Jesus would be the perfect older brother, and that everything he did would be right. And so this, is, this kind of strikes us as weird. So, but let's look at it. So we see earlier that Jesus has been around his family. They were together. Uh, there was, they, were, they were not unfriendly. If you remember uh, the miracle at Canaan, Jesus' first public ministry in John chapter 2, the rest of his family was there. Um, we know the names of his brothers. In Matthew 13, we're given the names of James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. It also is mentioned that he has sisters, even though we, they didn't give the name of the sisters. And these brothers and sisters were the younger children of Mary and Joseph. Um, 
there's some beliefs out there that Mary never had any other kids or anything like that. Scripture clearly teaches us otherwise. Um, so Mary and Joseph went on to have other children, and we see them here uh, named in Matthew 13. But when we come to these events, uh, the time, the Jesus' adult life, we see that Joseph is not present. And, uh, you know, the most obvious suggestion there is that he's passed away by this point, so, um, which would not be terribly unusual. But at this point, it seems that Jesus' family was concerned about him. In, in Mark 3, it says that his own people thought that he uh, had lost his senses. So they thought Jesus was acting a bit crazy and they were concerned about him. Uh, later in John chapter 7, we see that for not even his brothers were believing in him. So he was making these claims, he was doing these things, but his brothers didn't believe him at the time. After the ascension, after Jesus being crucified and rode from, rose from the grave, we see that his family prayed with the other disciples in Acts chapter 1. And then later on, we see that James became a leader in the Jerusalem church. That's in Galatians chapter 2. And he's thought to be the author of the book of James. So after this time, James at least comes around and recognizes Jesus for who he is. But the truth that we have to see here is that family ties are at best temporal or temporary. But spiritual ties are eternal. Our family ties are at best temporal, but our spiritual ties are eternal. Caring for your family is a godly responsibility, but it is not our highest calling in our life. Um, In Luke 14, Jesus says that you have to hate your father and your mother to follow him. It's like, wow, that is... That's pretty intense. But then if you read on, he's talking about counting the cost. What are the costs if you believe and the rest of your family doesn't? People are kicked out of their families all the time because one becomes a believer and the rest of the family does not. It happens, uh, and even in, in our country, it's not something that's limited to other places. So you have to be willing to be disconnected from the rest of your family if that's what's required to follow Jesus. In Matthew 19, Jesus talks about those who have left houses and left their family to follow him. And he tells them that their reward will be greater than anything they had to give up. And for most of us, our families are the most precious thing for us here on this earth. You know, it's like you can burn down our house, you can empty out our bank accounts, but our family is what's important. But Jesus says, if you have to give those up to follow me, your reward is going to be even greater. So when we look at this whole passage, we have a few questions to consider. What kind of soil is your heart? The first time we have to answer that question is when we're first presented the gospel, when we hear it, before we you know, understand who Jesus is. Do we have a soil? Is our heart the type of place that is honestly seeking the truth, that wants to know who Jesus is? And do we accept Him and do we follow Him as our leader and as our Savior? But after that point, as we grow and mature, is our our hearts good soil for the continuing work of God? Because many people can become believers and be genuine in that, but over time, their hearts can start to harden up to where there's not much growth there. They're not really open to the continuing work of, of God in their life. So we have to make sure that we're constantly cultivating our soul. You can't, even if you have a great garden, you still have to work it. 
You still have to till it up. You still have to put fertilizer out. You still have to irrigate it sometimes. Our hearts are the same way. We have to continually work to make sure that our hearts are good soil to hear what God has to say to us. But beyond hearing, later Jesus would make doing a test of friendship for him. In John 15, verse 4, it says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. So we can't just hear because we're, we're in a society where we live just absorbing as much information as possible. Well, if that information never drives us to do what God has called us to, then we're not really hearing it. The f- fruit, the fruit that we talked about, the fruit of the Spirit, these good works, they're evidence of salvation. We can never know another person's heart completely to know, yes, that person is saved or no, they're not. But we get a lot of indications. But when we see God's work in somebody's life, we have, sometimes we have this identification with somebody where we understand, yeah, you know, I see the Spirit of God in you working. That gives us evidence to a person's salvation. So as we consider these things, examine our own lives to see, is there fruit there? Is God continuing to work? Is our, are our hearts good soil for Him to continue to work? If this is the first time you've heard anything about Jesus and the gospel, ask yourself, is my heart the kind of soil that this can fall in, this truth can hit and start to grow and grow well? Am I going to take care of it to make sure that this is that this grows in my life. I'm going to make sure that it puts down roots. And as we go into our open time, we'll have this time where you can uh, pray, you can read scripture, you can request a song, you can come and take the bread and the cup during this time. This is for, uh, this is for believers who have had that good soil, whose the gospel is growing in their lives uh, as we come to remember Jesus. Um, we can't remember him if we don't know him. So we have this time that you can come and do that as, uh, as you feel led to do that. But all of this is to remember Jesus, to remember the seed of the gospel that fell into our hearts uh, and that is growing in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, the time that many of us have been able to spend with family over this past week, the fellowship and the food and all the great things that we, we've had and the time of Thanksgiving. And Lord, as we come into this season, we'll remember you coming to, to earth as, as a child, Lord, help us not get wrapped up in all the materialism and all the things that uh, seem to, to pollute uh, this season. But Lord, we pray that our hearts would continue to be good soil for you, that as the seed of the gospel falls, that it will grow and take root. And as we grow older and, and uh, more mature in following you, that it will continue to grow in us and through us. But our lives would be full of fruit that, that show that you're working inside of us and through us. We remember you at this time. We thank you for the bread and for the cup, the bread that points to your body that was broken and the cup that remembers the blood that you shed for us. We're thankful that you held nothing back in coming to save us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.